In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. The Sleepless Tales Commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. At some point in our lives, we have all frowned upon the monotony of daily life, the rinsing and repeating of the same actions with the same people at the same time every day. The only comfort being the solace of knowing that when you die, you'll finally be at peace. This repetitious purgatory called existence will surely be forgotten in the afterlife, right? wrong, because you just woke up in The Grey Rooms. Starting its fourth season, The Grey Rooms podcast begins their next chapter with a trio of guests aboard a luxury train barreling across an impossible landscape. At each stop, a guest exits the train and finds themselves forced to experience the final moments of another person's life. Every episode of The Grey Rooms features a new, harrowing demise. Again and again, the passengers find themselves awaking back on the train, dreading the next stop, determined to escape from the agony and terror of ends not their own. Billed as a cross between Tales from the Crypt and Quantum Leap, the Grey Rooms podcast offers a unique journey in which an overarching narrative combines with anthology horror. Enjoy terrifying stories from a variety of authors and voice actors, including familiar names from the No Sleep Ensemble. All past seasons are available now, including the recent miniseries Descent into Hell, featuring our own Graham Rowett and Sarah Thomas. The premiere of Season 4 has just left the station, so it's time to climb aboard. You can enter the Grey Rooms now, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen with extreme caution. Oh, and speaking of listening with extreme caution, it's time to get sleepless. In our first tale, we join a woman who is bored senseless, and that's because she's stuck in a boardroom meeting. Many of us know how dull it is to be stuck in an unnecessary meeting, but in this tale, shared with us by author Rona Vassilar, we find out how much worse it can be when a meddling co-worker decides to prolong matters in the most infuriating ways. I join Nicole Goodnight, Dan Zapula, Mike Delgadio, and Wafia White in performing this tale. So settle back and try not to get noticed. Maybe you can use this dull conference to get some shut-eye. 
but it's more likely that you'll have to pretend to care why your colleague insists, I think we should kill Bullet 3. I think we should kill Bullet 3. The air conditioner made a clicking sound every 20 seconds. I'd never noticed it before, but I did then, sitting in that conference room 20 floors above street level. Briefly, I fantasized about walking over to the wall, ripping the air conditioner from its perch and tossing it through the window to the street below. I let the imaginary sound of shattering glass fill my ears, but it still wasn't enough to drown out that noise. Bullet three? Realigning cost optimization structure? (laughs) That's a critical component of our Q3 strategy. We can't leave that out. Turns out there's one thing more annoying than the repetitive clicking noise, and that's Johnson's voice. I glanced at his position near the head of the conference table. His expertly tailored navy blue suit was ruined by the obnoxious paisley tie that he probably thought was quirky and fun. Who unironically wears a paisley tie to work? Assholes. That's who. Assholes who slick their hair back with enough oil to kill a flock of unfortunate waterfowl in other circumstances. He caught me looking at him and flashed me a smarmy smile, the kind that makes you want to take a three-day shower. I let my eyes flick back to his presentation. It was a white slide with a slim black border. In the left corner was our company logo. The text was made up entirely of black headings with accompanying black bullet points. It had taken two weeks to come to an agreement on that template. And now, Sanford wanted to kill Bullet 3. It feels duplicative to me. We mentioned right-sizing our capital structure in Bullet 7. Isn't that enough? We can take out Bullet 3 and the slide will look less cluttered. It's the smart move. I squeezed my eyes shut for a moment. The smart move. I knew I wasn't the only person to sense Sanford's passive-aggressive undertone. My eyes flicked back to Johnson, taking in his cold, stony stare. Let it go. Just let it go. But while Johnson was capable of many things, letting it go was apparently not one of them. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Do you mean to imply that realigning your cost structure and right-sizing your capital structure are somehow equivalent? Would you care to explain how you came to that conclusion? Too aggressive. He could have gotten away with a little snark, but that last sentence? (laughs) That last sentence set the entire room on the path to escalation. I watched Sanford's eye twitch, his jaw open, and promptly tried to focus on anything other than the argument boiling at the front of the room. That's about the moment I noticed Peterson staring at me. He was sitting directly across from me, and instead of angling his body to the front of the room as the rest of us were doing, he'd shifted to stare at me straight on. I looked back at him, bewildered. There was something strange about him that day. He looked the same as usual, sure. Sandy blonde hair, black suit, no tie, hands folded in front of him on the table. But he was... No, not staring. Actually, glaring right at me. What? I mouthed with an exaggerated quirk of my eyebrow. He didn't respond. He didn't move at all. Kate? My attention was called to the front of the room. Now Johnson and Sanford were staring at me, along with everyone else. 
Did you hear what I said? Johnson somehow managed to look unimpressed and skeevy at the same time. I could feel my face turning red as I cleared my throat. No, I'm sorry. I didn't catch that. His mouth twisted a little. Please, try to pay attention. There was a chuckle somewhere behind me. I nodded and the argument up front continued. What if we reword bullet three and take the mention of capital structure out of bullet seven? I'm not confident we could do that and preserve the original meaning of both bullets. Bitch. My head whipped back to Peterson. It was his voice, I was sure of it, the way he lingered on his vowels. He was still staring at me. I glanced around the room. Nobody else had heard him say it. Perturbed, I kept my eyes on the front. Maybe if I ignored him, he'd eventually stop. The argument raged on. We were still on slide six. We had 46 more to go. Or was it 48? Did we end up adding the two case studies or did we leave them out? I leaned forward to catch Meryl's attention. She glanced back at me, a little annoyed, as though she'd been entirely engrossed in the endless bickering. How many slides did we settle on? She rolled her eyes. Six thousand. I paused, my brow furrowing. What? I said fifty-three. Would you pay attention, please? I rolled my eyes right back at her and settled down in my chair. But this time, as I looked at the back of her head, something caught my eye. It took a moment for me to discern what it was, so much so that I thought maybe I'd imagined it. But no. There. Her collar. She was wearing a slate gray shirt, which almost, but not quite, concealed the blood stain that was spreading on the cloth. I leaned forward and saw, through her thick, dark hair, blood pouring down from the crown of her head. Holy shit. Apparently, I was louder than I thought. Something you want to share with the class, Kate? Meryl's bleeding. Now everyone turned to stare at me once again, including Meryl, who was looking at me like I'd grown a second head. Look at the back of her head. She's got blood running down to her shirt. Meryl, you need to see a doctor. I'm not bleeding. Her voice was flat, devoid of the inflection I normally associated with her. It matched her eyes, the way they stared blankly at me, unblinking. Jesus, how do you not feel that? I reached to the back of her neck, dragged my fingers through the hot liquid. She swatted me away. Are you kidding? Do not touch me. Still, she didn't blink. I held up my blood-covered fingers. See? We need to call an ambulance. Someone get a... a towel or something? We, We should apply pressure to the wound. Are you done? I looked around the room at everyone's faces, all shades of annoyance and apathy. Am I... what the hell kind of question is that? No, I am not done. What is wrong with you people? Beverly, do you feel that you need to go to the hospital? Sanford rode over me, staring at Meryl, an eyebrow raised. I watched her shake her head in front of me. No, I'm fine. Let's continue. She turned back around to glare at me and I shrank in my seat. The conversation droned on again at the front, all the fight drained out. At some point, they'd settled on keeping bullet three, but now they were discussing the merits of the second heading. I tried to concentrate, but I couldn't stay focused. Peterson's behavior, the blood on Meryl's shirt, something was wrong. And no matter how hard I tried to ignore it, I couldn't. I think we need to include a definition for digital transformation here. I disagree. Our audience will know what that means. They'll think it's insulting if we have to spell it out for them. 
Wait, why were they talking about digital transformation? I stared hard at the slide, but I couldn't seem to get a grip on what it was talking about. Cost optimization here, private equity there, digital transformation, single audit, risk mitigation assessment. None of these things made sense to me. And then there was the audience. Who were we giving this presentation to exactly? A group of investors? The C-suite? Or were we the executives? Wait, who were we? I looked around the table with new eyes. Peterson, Johnson, Sanford, Merrill, Thompson, Smith, Cleaver. I knew their names. I knew their faces, but no, I didn't know them at all. I tried to remember when we'd met. Merrill, Beverly Merrill. Didn't I meet her when I interviewed? Here at, where, where were we? What company were we working for? No, no, no. I shot out of my chair, an adrenaline surge shocking my heart as I stepped away from the conference table of strangers. What's going on? What the fuck is happening here? This time, nobody looked at me. Nobody paid me attention at all. Johnson was still talking at the front. Interoperability is going to be a key issue here. If the legacy technology doesn't- What the fuck is happening? I could feel the sweat trickling down my temples and a sick, nauseated feeling pounding in my gut. I backed away until I hit the window. I looked down, but I couldn't see anything below us. No street, no clouds, not even darkness, just emptiness. No, <laughs> I'm leaving. Fuck this and fuck all of you. I was trembling now, trying hard to slow my heart rate as Johnson glanced over at me and rolled his eyes. You can leave anytime you want. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. I was carefully ignored as I strode towards the exit, just barely restraining myself from a full-on sprint. It wasn't there. The smooth white wall was entirely unbroken. Where is it? Where's the door? I started running at a full tilt around the room. The, the door was gone. Now so too were the windows. We were sealed inside a white box. The fluorescent lighting got brighter and brighter as I stared wildly around the room until it was physically painful to keep my eyes open. I crouched down and shoved my hands over my face. I tried to be anywhere else, tried to will myself into a different reality, but I was in this reality, and here, there was no escape. Sanford's voice, slightly distorted by a strange gurgle as though he were drowning in his own blood, filtered into my left ear as I sobbed. Let's go back a moment. I think we need to return to our previous discussion. I screamed and screamed and screamed, and then... It's time to kill Bullet 3. The fluorescence burned my eyes when I cracked them open, so I shut them quickly and groaned. Ms. Reynolds, are you awake? I wondered for a moment who Miss Reynolds was before remembering that was me, and my first name was Stephanie, and I was lying down and most certainly not wearing a suit, and there was still an annoying chirping noise, but no, no, it's beeping. It's like a heart monitor. Is that a heart monitor? Trying to speak made my throat ache. It was so dry. I cracked my eyes open and let them adjust slowly to the light in the hospital room. A nurse stood at my side, his reassuring smile belying the clear concern in his eyes. Just hang tight, Miss Reynolds. I'm going to go get the doctor, okay? Doctor? W what? Why? I looked down at myself for the first time. Thick bandages covered my torso. 
I tried to remember what happened to understand why they'd be there, but whatever it was, it lurked under the surface. If I just thought hard enough, caught the right train of thought, I was sure I'd remember, but... Ah, Miss Reynolds, it's good to see you awake. How are you feeling? I blinked in shock. Meryl was standing right in front of me, her box braids pulled away from her face, her smile so pleasant I almost wasn't sure it was her at first. But it was. You... I, I don't... What happened? The nurse was adjusting my IV, only he wasn't just a nurse. He was Johnson. I didn't recognize him at first because his hair wasn't slicked back, but now that I knew what to look for, I could tell it was him. It's perfectly normal to feel confused. Tell me, what's the last thing you remember? The last thing I remembered was... The, the lights, they were so bright, and I... I was screaming, but... There weren't any doors or, or windows. Her brow furrowed as she listened to me. She glanced at Johnson before returning to meet my gaze. Ms. Reynolds, you were a victim of a random street attack on the corner of 40th and Main. Do you remember anything about that? I tried to make my brain go somewhere else, anywhere but that sterile white room with its projector and presentation and stifling air. No, I'm sorry, I... <sighs> I don't remember. She smiled again. She was smiling an awful lot, especially for what she said next. That's all right. You were stabbed 14 times, Miss Reynolds, before passerbys were able to pull him off of you. Things were pretty touch and go for a while there. But you're strong and you pulled through. You're going to be okay. My brain snagged on something she said. Touch and go? What does that mean? The doctor hesitated for a moment. Your heart stopped during surgery. Fortunately, we were able to bring you back and get you stabilized. I started to feel lightheaded as her words fuzzed out and static filled my ears. My eyes darted around the room, taking everything in, trying to come to terms with what had happened, what really happened. My eyes caught on the TV. I hadn't noticed it before because the sound was muted, but it was impossible to miss especially as I saw Sanford's face staring at me from a news program. Who is that? The doctor's eyes followed my line of sight until she saw the TV. There was a brief, heated conversation with the nurse who shut the program off as fast as humanly possible. That's him, that was... Yes, that is the man who attacked you. I'm sorry you had to see that. We didn't... What happened to him? Where is he now? Did, did the police catch him? The doctor appeared at a loss for words. Finally, she spoke. He's dead. He slit his throat before the police arrived. And that, as they say, is that. My recovery in the hospital was briefer than I had expected. Partly because my body healed faster than anticipated, and partly because my health insurance made a longer stay cost prohibitive. By the time I was released, I was certain of who I was. My name is Stephanie Reynolds. I'm a 24-year-old barista at a coffee shop working my way through a psychology degree. I've never worked in a corporate office, much less put together a business proposal. The man who attacked me has yet to be identified. His fingerprints aren't in any known database. Nobody has come forward with so much as a name. The police assure me they'll find out who he is, but I've told them it doesn't really matter. I have a name for him, and that's enough for me. 
I also learned that the doctor's name is Dr. Monica Small. The nurse is Stephen Finch. They were both extraordinarily kind to me over the course of my recovery. Eventually, I was able to separate them from the nightmare versions of themselves in my dream. Was it a dream? Since my recovery, I've been repeatedly returning to what I saw, what I experienced. Rather than fading over time, the images have become more real, more visceral. If I close my eyes, I find myself back there, stuck in that room of strangers who aren't strangers, screaming for someone to let me out. I've done some research, and now I think I know what happened. I think I know the truth. Jean-Paul Sartre once famously said that hell is other people. But I don't think he got it quite right. Hell is a boardroom meeting. And you'd better pray to God they don't kill Bullet 3. It only takes a second to change your life. A sudden win of the lottery. A long dormant aneurysm suddenly rupturing. The words, I do. Or a sudden swerve away from oncoming headlights. And in this tale, shared with us by author Michael J. Nicholson, the second to swerve leads to hours of undiscovered agony. Performing this tale are David Alt and Andy Cresswell. So try to be positive. Maybe it's a blessing. You've got time to yourself to reflect and reassess and reconsider who you are. You've got room to grow. The flash of oncoming headlights... A prolonged squeal of rubber on tarmac. A sudden weightless sensation as the car leaves the road, giving a fraction of a second to think, I'm going to die. The sound of metal folding in on itself. Pain. Darkness. My eyes flicker open. The light hurts my brain, so I squint, trying to determine if it is morning or afternoon, but I don't know which way is north. I have no idea how long I've been lying here. My car is on its side about 30 meters away on the far side of what looks to be a crater. I must have been thrown clear when it hit the ground. I wonder if I went through the windscreen and tried to sit up to check for injuries. Pain shoots throughout my whole body and the darkness closes in again. This time I dream, or at least something like it. Images of Judy flash through my head. Judy sitting with the tatty old yellow and gold throw cushion she refuses to get rid of, wondering where I am. Judy angry at me for wasting money buying her roses. Judy and I making love in the tent in the rain. These are interspersed with jagged flashes of the accident, frozen in time. I see the moment the car left the road in perfect clarity. I can even make out the look of panic on the other driver's face. I am cold. Or my dreams are... I think I've come to again. The ground under my back is cold, hard, and uncomfortable. Remembering the last time I tried to move, I make do with opening my eyes carefully. 
The stars are out and the moon is almost full. Does this mean I've been lying here for a full 24 hours? Why has nobody come to look for me? The car is where I remember it, but the door is hanging off and I see the impact has forced the engine back about three feet into the passenger seat. There is no way I am driving out of here. The crater is covered with light green ivy or at least some kind of creeper. I don't recognize it at any rate. I wiggle my fingers. They work. I turn my head slightly to one side. There is some pain, but nothing excruciating. I try to lift my left arm and it responds, not without complaint, but it seems I can move it. I try the same with my right arm, but it's stuck in something. The creeper. I pull at the plant in a feeble effort to free myself, but I simply don't have the strength. I move my hands slowly across my torso up to my face, feeling torn clothes and slivers of what I assume to be glass stuck in my flesh. It seems my first guess about going through the windscreen was on the mark. Since I appear to be in one piece, I risk lifting my head to get a better look around. <sighs> That's when I see the large piece of jagged bone sticking through the right thigh of my jeans. I jerk reflexively in fright, causing a wave of pain to wash up across my body. The pain brings with it the darkness. When I wake next, it's still dark. Or have I missed a full day? The moon is low in the sky, but I have no way of knowing how long I was out. I am still cold, but my right leg feels warm. Ow! It is meant to be a cry to anybody passing on the road, but it comes out as a hoarse croak, barely audible even to my own ears. Gently, I roll my head to the right to try and see my leg. It must have moved while unconscious, because my right leg is now tangled up in the creeper that covers the rest of the crater, so much so that I can see only the white, splintered tip of bone poking through the leaves. <coughs> my voice is still not functioning. I need to drink. How long do they say it's possible to survive without water? Three days? How much longer do I have left? Judy must be frantic with worry by now. The other driver obviously drove off without reporting the accident. This should make me angry, but all I can think about is how I am going to die alone. Pain explodes in my leg and I let out a hoarse scream that only serves to damage my parched throat. I tilt my head around again to get another look at it. All that is visible now is the creeper. It is as if I have been lying here for weeks and the plant life is gradually covering my body. Pain again, different this time, slower, like an injection at the dentist. I feel movement. Something is sending out exploratory tendrils. Something inside my leg. One heads down my thigh, working its way around muscle and tendon. I feel it probing my knee before spiraling around my calf and down towards my ankle. A second works its way around the back of my leg. The sensation is not unpleasant now. It, it feels as though something is tracing patterns inside my leg with a ballpoint pen. Then it stops. I am powerless. There is nothing I can do other than lie there wondering what will happen next. I don't have long to wait. The exploration seems to be over, at least for the moment. There is still movement, though it is more focused now. Then I realize what is happening. They are tightening, pulling together. 
The pain that had begun to fade into the background comes back with a vengeance as the broken pieces of femur are dragged agonizingly slowly back into place. About halfway through the operation, I thankfully pass out again. When I come to, I discover that my leg has been straightened and the bone is no longer sticking out. I can feel no movement of the plant in my leg right now. Instead, it is slowly spreading across my torso, slowly this time, as though there is no longer any rush. I no longer feel any pain. I have given up trying to work out how long I've been lying here, but I've stopped feeling thirsty, or hungry for that matter. My throat is dry and cracked and I cannot talk, let alone shout for help, yet somehow my body is being hydrated and nourished. I can only assume it is the plant. The creeper that was covering my leg has disappeared, but the plant has grown tightly around my wrists and ankles, holding me prisoner in a star formation. I can move my head and look around me, but nothing more. Raising my head a little, I can see where the invader has entered the wound on my leg, but other than this, there is no evidence of what is happening inside me. A thought occurs to me. What will happen when the creeper reaches my heart? It's perhaps too late to worry about this now, and part of me wonders when the panic will set in. For the rest of the day, I am held in place by the vine, unable to move. Every so often I test my bonds, but they hold firm. I have given up calling for help. Few cars use that road and no pedestrians. Besides, my voice hasn't recovered, and all shouting achieves is pain in my throat. In the end, I resign myself to the fact that I am being held prisoner by a plant. I lie there and think of Judy. She is my only hope, after all, and perhaps she has search parties out hunting for me, though she hadn't known my route. As night descends and the stars begin pricking the heavens, I drift off to sleep. This time I dream of alien landscapes. Two moons in the sky at night and an unfamiliar pattern of stars. The landscape is verdant, lush with plants and grasses, and I curl my bare toes into the damp earth. It feels good. I push them further in, extending my toes down deep into the earth, seeking out nutrients. I wake with a start. The sun is already halfway to its zenith, and it must be around ten in the morning. My dream is fading, and I am left with a tingling in my toes and a strange sense of belonging. My fingers itch. Without thinking about it, I lift my left arm to inspect my fingers. It is only after a moment's introspection that I realize I am no longer held down by the creeper. I test my right arm, then my legs. I am free. Tentatively, I sit up, my senses on high alert for any sign of pain. Nothing. As I raise my torso and pull my knees up slightly to gain balance, the vine falls away. I pull at the remaining shoots that are tangled in my clothes and around my limbs. They fall away without resistance. With a moment's careful maneuvering, I am on my feet again for the first time in... How many days has it been? I have no idea. The right leg of my jeans is caked with dried blood and dirt, but the leg seems sound when I put some weight on it. I climb the embankment up to the road. There was no guardrail on the corner, and so no sign from here that there has been an accident. I have no plan other than to start walking in the direction of home, the direction of Judy. After spending so long lying in the middle of nowhere, my perception of time is skewed. 
But it seems like maybe an hour or so passes before a truck approaches from behind. I turn to watch as it slows, passes me and pulls over to the side of the road. I walk up to the passenger door. You after a ride, buddy? He is an unshaven, untidy man dressed in jeans and a t-shirt that does little to conceal his gut, but he doesn't look like a serial killer and I really want to get home. Please, jump in. I can take you about 40 miles down the road, but that's the end of the line for my delivery. That do you? That'd be great. I croak out the first two words before seeming to find my voice. It hurts my throat still, but it does seem like I can talk again. As I sink into the passenger seat, I realize just how tired I am. I might well have taken a lift from a murderer if it got me just a mile further down the road. The driver makes no move to restart the engine. Pete, sorry. I study the driver and notice he is doing the same to me. I suddenly realize that I must look a right state and wonder if he is regretting picking me up. Name's Pete. And you are? I have to think a moment. Julian. My friends call me Jules. Pete nods towards my leg. You need a doctor, Jules? Looks like you've had a bit of an accident. I'll be okay. It's only as I say this to soothe my ride that I realize it's true. I will be okay. I uh, had a bit of an accident back there. I just need to get home, see my wife and call the insurance company. Pete's shoulders relax a little. My story is normal enough to reassure him, even if my appearance is a little scary. At the touch of a button, the engine roars into life and he pulls the truck back onto the road. I could do with a drink if you have anything. Pete looks abashed as though he's ashamed of playing the poor host. Sorry, don't know what I was thinking. There's a couple of cans of coke in the glove compartment. I open it up and pull out a can. I don't really like coke, but right now I'd probably drink seawater. The liquid feels great on my throat and I feel the sugar rushing through my system. It feels good. Very good. In fact, it feels good in places that a soft drink shouldn't reach. My whole body is suffused with energy as the coke courses across my torso and down my arms and legs. I feel I could take on the world. I feel alive. The change obviously isn't just in my head, Pete notices. That seems to have helped. Take the other can if you like. No. No, it's fine. One's enough for now. It's true. I don't need more fluid for the moment. What I need is to spread. To grow. There is only one way to do this in the current environment. Do you think you could pull over for a moment? Call of nature. Pete smiles. Sure. When the truck stops, Pete jumps at the touch of my hand on his shoulder and looks a little nervous. It doesn't last long. Within seconds, it has turned to fear as the green shoots extend from my fingertips, slithering across his face and into his mouth and nostrils. He gags a little, then stiffens. I sit there a minute or two, feeling my roots explore his body. They wrap themselves around his nerves, spread down his limbs and his spine, shoot tiny tendrils up into the brain. Everything about Pete is open to me now. Where he lives, what he ate for breakfast, who his first love was, everything he has ever done or read. His life has been empty. It will be better now. I pull my hand away, snapping the connection between us. My first child is born. 
This will be a good planet to call home. It takes a while for Pete to wake. When he does, his forehead furrows and he opens his mouth to speak before a look of calm descends across his features and he smiles at me. Where to? I think you should go and visit your sister. It's been too long. But first, I'd like to get home to my wife. I tell him my address. Judy will be with me soon. I've never been a fan of friends dropping by unexpectedly. You know, those folks who just show up out of the blue. Those, I was just in the neighborhood people. I like my company to be announced, thank you. But in this tale, shared with us by author Andrew Cosma, we find ourselves faced with guests who are not only unannounced, but also entirely unknown. Performing this tale are Mick Wingert, Kristen DiMercurio, and Sarah Thomas. But don't worry when a stranger calls. It's happening to everyone these days. They've become a part of everyday life. The Night Visitors. When the last blanche of light faded into the shadows, there they were. The doors locked, the front gate tightly shut. It didn't matter what you did to keep them out. They never were. One night I couldn't sleep again and shuffled into the kitchen for water. From the corner of my eye, I noticed an old man chewing a cigar at my kitchen table. The wet end of the cigar smacked against his lips like a lollipop. That was the first night visitor I'd seen, though I'd been hearing about them for months. I told myself... If some person randomly showed up in my house, I'd confront him right away, yell and scream, pick up a chair to use as a club, throw every knife in the drawer at his face. Whenever I heard a night visitor had been spotted in my neighborhood, I'd keep watch at the window. I'd never let them in, of course. How could you see a thing like that coming and just do nothing? But when I finally saw one, it wasn't like that at all. He sat at my table like he belonged there, the light wasn't on, and though a stranger sitting in my kitchen in the dark should have been creepy and strange, it fit him. A darkness in the greater darkness. His hands were clasped before him on the table, but awkwardly because he was missing two fingers on his right hand. He never even looked up at me, despite all the noise I was making. I almost asked him if he was okay, as though we were old friends who'd run into each other at the grocery store. In the dark... He looked hangdog and hag-ridden, his eye sockets so bruised with the lack of sleep, I couldn't see his eyes at all. I wish I had asked him then, because I never saw him again. I had a visitor, I told Lana when she picked up the phone. We'd been broken up for months, but some of my stuff was still at her place, which meant she always took my calls. I thought we agreed not to discuss our sex lives. No, come on, I'd never... But I would. And I had. I'm sorry. 
Lana ignored my apology. I couldn't blame her. It was half of what spilled from my mouth every time we talked, as constant and meaningless as junk mail. I changed the lock, just so you're not surprised. I'd been expecting it. I was still surprised, but I wasn't going to let her know that. Instead, I was direct to the point. I mean, I had a night visitor. She didn't say anything at first, but the tone of the call changed. It was as if the emptiness, which was her lack of voice, meant not just that she wasn't speaking, but that she wasn't there. She was there, but also not there. Like a wall of glass had suddenly risen up between us. And we could see each other, but we couldn't touch. Not anymore. And when she finally spoke, her voice had the tinny, stilted quality of a recording. They won't hurt you. It was an accusation rather than something meant to comfort. I wanted to say I wouldn't hurt her either, but I would, and I had. During the day, everything was normal, or it was the normal I had come to accept. If Houston looked emptier, that was my imagination. The sidewalks had always been shed snakeskins. I walked them and the people I passed didn't look up. Why would they? Summer in Houston was always oppressive, but now it was just as if the city itself were sick. The weather careened from heat that tried to melt your shoes and chilly days which promised a rain that never came, all without reason or warning. Some evenings, I'd step out for the last moments of daylight and see the staticky fog of a snow flurry bearing down on me, but it never hit the ground. I tried to expect the night visitors. When I brushed my teeth, I watched the mirror for the shadow in the shower behind me. I wore slippers so I'd hear the echo of someone else's footsteps. Like when you're driving to work on a snowy gray morning and you realize just a split second before it happens, far too late to stop it, far too late to do anything useful at all, that you're about to skid into the guardrail. And so you try to brace yourself because you want to survive. The wreck is inevitable. The pain is inevitable. But your body tries to survive even when your heart isn't in it. That's just the way it is. Your heart could let your body know when survival isn't worth it, but your heart is stupid and slow and usually doesn't get around to voicing its opinion until the wreck is all over. I had no idea what the night visitors wanted, but I braced myself anyway, just as I hugged my cat to my chest during a rainstorm to brace her against the thunder I knew was coming, but she didn't. But even though I expected them, I was always startled. A woman slowly making instant coffee, sadness in the arc of the water from the kettle to the cup. Two men sitting in chairs on the back lawn facing each other, not speaking, just staring. Every night visitor froze me in the middle of whatever I was doing. Every thought vanished from my mind. Instead, I saw them and only them as though they were a memory I couldn't help reliving. They never spoke. They never told me what they wanted. They never told anybody what they wanted. But I noticed that, with time, everyone else seemed to get used to their night visitors. They became quirky bits of household folklore, almost a status symbol. They became normal. Up so late that I wasn't watching TV so much as letting its light scrub my face, I saw a cable news segment about making your night visitor a part of the family. Oh, don't mind him, an elegant middle-aged blonde told the camera as it panned across her unlit den and the motionless figure on the couch. He won't bite. Other people seemed charmed by their night visitors. So why wasn't I? I woke from a nightmare each time a night visitor appeared, except the nightmare was ongoing, 
I was terrified. I was fear and only fear. And I had no idea what I was scared of. I tried to explain that fear to other people. Just to get those feelings outside of my skull. They're not real. I know that. Just, it's impossible not to see them as real. I want them to be cardboard cutouts, you know? One-dimensional, easily tipped over, something I could stuff into the trash can or the fireplace. Sir, have you tried restarting the modem? I was on the phone with Harriet, my friendly Time Warner tech support associate. Tech support being the only number I could call at this hour and get an answer. Though I hadn't had any night visitors for three days, I could not stop thinking about them. I'd wanted them gone for so long, but now I was haunted by their absence. But they aren't cardboard cutouts at all. I continued, my tone perfectly and utterly sane. They're like relatives I've never met, only seen pictures of, and no matter how I want to, I can't be rude to them. It's possible your modem just needs to be reset, sir. I took a breath to admit my modem wasn't the problem, and at the same time, she inhaled sharply and went silent. Just like with Lana, Harriet had seen something I hadn't. I was sure of it. Do you see one now? Is there a night visitor there with you? Resetting the system now, sir. Please be patient. I expected her to hang up, but she didn't. Her shallow breaths kept coming. I imagined her eyes focused on a night visitor in her office building, occupying a cubicle that should be empty, or standing at the water cooler, eyes staring vacantly back at her through her, as though she wasn't there and never had been. And while there came then no sound behind me, no brush of moving air, I was suddenly convinced a night visitor was with me too, in the doorway to the kitchen behind me. I was facing the fridge, its surface covered with pictures of Lana and I together at friends' parties, at the county fair, on a boat in the Caribbean. In none of those pictures were we touching, but I couldn't remember whether they'd always been that way. Had one of my night visitors changed them? Was there someone behind me? And had that person modified the images on the fridge? Or was it my own memory that was trying to trick me? I don't know what to believe, but whose fault was that? I didn't want to let whoever was there know I knew they were watching me. The phone dug into my ear and my arm cramped, but I didn't move. Harriet still breathed on the other end of the line. I considered asking her for something, anything, Stillness smothered me like a heavy quilt. The longer I stood there, the more my kitchen felt alien to me. The pictures I'd taken from the old place and had nearly memorized, I couldn't recognize myself in them anymore. Why had I even put them back up? Why had I covered my new fridge with pictures of my old girlfriend as if she lived here too, as if we were still together? I knew I was there in the picture next to Lana. I could remember being on the boat, on the Ferris wheel, in those torch-lit backyards... That wasn't me in the pictures. And that wasn't Lana, either. But some other woman with darker hair and a sharper chin. Eyes the color of rain-soaked grass. I know you're there. Why was it so hard to speak? I know what you want. I didn't, but I found it better to have the upper hand in relationships. The woman behind me, because I was sure it was a woman now, didn't say a thing. Unlike Harriet's breathing in my ear, regular as my own pulse, the night visitor might as well have been a ghost. And her silence infuriated me. All the fear I'd felt which kept me frozen in place like a little kid hiding in his bed from the closet monster, it heated slowly into rage. 
You can't have it! I swung around using my phone as a club, aiming for where I knew her head would be. Night visitors were intruders, and I had the right, goddammit. My phone hit the wall, the unbreakable gorilla glass shattering. Pain shot through my thumb and fingers. The wall was spotted with blood. No one was there. In my ear, I could still hear Harriet's breathing. The next day was a phantom, a dusty veil stored in the attic for too long. I walked through the motions of my job, speaking to no one and no one speaking to me. And the next day, and the next. Every word was written down or emailed now. The world had the cold silence of a walk-in freezer. The bandage on my hand bled through by the end of every day, no matter how well I cleaned and treated the wound. I didn't replace my phone. At night, my senses burned. I could hear every creak of the house as it settled. I could smell mold in the attic just starting to spore. The air tasted like some exotic spice, like cinnamon or cloves. Something delectable that made you sick if you took too much. The night visitors came back every night now. But I would see only a foot as one turned a corner. I'd find milk-crusted glasses littering the kitchen table. Leftovers in the microwave just warmed and abandoned. Here, but not here. I began to write down each piece of evidence, each foot glimpsed, turning a corner, as though observing was the same as knowing. And I tried to call out to whoever had left that evidence. But I couldn't. Each encounter with the detritus left by one of my night visitors felt like the tired culmination of years spent in each other's company. Where we no longer recognized each other. Where we were strangers. Yet unlike strangers, we had nothing to say to one another because everything had, oh so long ago, already been said. It was as though I'd known them too long, even though I didn't know any of them at all. And so I wasn't prepared. On the evening I'd planned to burn the house down, walking to the door with a gas can in hand, to find my kitchen crowded with night visitors. They followed me with their eyes as I stepped into the room and set the can on the floor beside me. I knew this, even though I couldn't see their eyes. They were watching me. I could feel it. I flipped the switch on the wall, and the kitchen flooded with light, but my visitors didn't move. They didn't scatter like roaches, but seemed somehow to settle even more firmly into their positions, as if the light had fixed them in place. And when I walked to the table where the light was brightest overhead, I saw they didn't have eyes, but deep pits rimmed with torn flesh. They breathed in anticipation. My visitors had left a seat open for me, and I took it, sitting next to a woman with muscular arms. Her fingernails were long and lacquered in a polish that looked like dried blood. Of course, I didn't have to sit there. I didn't have to keep sitting there. I didn't have to let her raise her hands to my face and rest her fingernails against my tear ducts. But it's always better to take the lead, even if you end up going in the wrong direction. Because how do you scream for help when you can't even speak? How do you keep from spinning into a guardrail and having your car pierced through and through when the guardrail is actually you? I'm ready. I gritted my teeth, ready for wherever this would take me. Anywhere had to be better than here.
Domestic abuse is one of life's real horrors that sadly so often remains behind closed doors. If you take any form of a relationship within a home, you can guarantee there will be myriad cases that have been discovered and far more which remain unspoken. And in this dark and harrowing tale, shared with us by author Blair Wolf, we get an insight into the childhood abuse, both physical and mental, that our adult narrator experienced from the woman who should have protected him. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement and Aaron Lillis. So look out for the signs. Don't be afraid to speak out if you can. Nobody should have to live through the events, such as those which occurred in my mother's house. Thomas Wolfe said, you can't go home again. But he was wrong. Home sucks you in like a whirlpool and shits you out the other end, a defenseless, shivering child. As soon as I stepped back into my childhood house three days ago, to the smells of stale cigarette smoke, black mold crawling up the walls, and the wet dog smell of thick brown carpets, I was home. A menagerie of ancient, ugly wind chimes, the constant soundtrack of my formative years, were crashing in the storm outside, which had just begun to rage. The storm hasn't let up since, and I'm trapped here now, with my memories, and whatever else this putrid, moldering abode holds. I started in the kitchen today, which is dim and brown, smells like blood and steamed vegetables. Packing, cleaning, filing, junking. The chaotic state of my mother's mind is reflected in the mess and confusion throughout the house. Every available space is cluttered with an odd assortment of trinkets and curios. Rifling through kitchen drawers, I find a flaking gold mirror shaped like a seashell, a children's hairbrush, and a variety of doll heads atop a stack of rotting magazines. I empty it into a box marked trash. As I start on the next drawer, which is jammed half shut, my hand closes around a small, hard metal object. As I try to retrieve it without scraping my arm up too badly, I almost jump out of my skin as a loud bang shakes the ceiling above my head. My arm is out, bleeding freely where I'd wrenched it back through the too narrow space in fright. I barely register it. I hold my breath and listen, straining to hear anything more from upstairs. I'd been hearing the noises since my first night here. I sit hunched on the tiled floor, back pressed against the cabinets for a full minute hearing only the thumping of my heart. Eventually, my breathing returns to normal, and I look down at what is clenched in my hand. I let out some small noise, a rush of breath that sounds like... I'm clutching a lighter. My mother's silver monogrammed lighter, to be precise. Mom was a prolific smoker 
tarnished metal barely even reflects the low light, but I can make out the curling letters of her initials, now filled in with dust. I drop it into my pocket and close my eyes, hugging myself tight as a wave of memory washes over me. I'm eight years old. I'm in pajamas, eating cereal at the kitchen table, when Mom comes in, smiling and laughing to herself in a funny mood. That was the way with her. It didn't happen when you'd been bad or when she was angry. It happened because she felt like it, because she wanted some fun, and this was how she got it. She stands, smiling at me for a while from the corner, long black hair must and hanging in her face, eyes gleaming. And then she shows me her new prize, the lighter. Isn't it pretty? I nod, my mouth full of off-brand cornflakes. She saunters over, predatory yellow teeth showing between her stretched lips, grinning all the while. Do you know how it works? She crouches behind me, sour-smelling mouth tickling my ear as if it were some great and special secret she was about to share. Creeping dread spreads through me, starting with her hot breath at my ear and trickling down to my toes. I shake my head no. She snatches my spoon away viciously, prying it from my little hand. Next, she flicks open her lighter and with her yellow thumbnail clicks the flame on. She begins to heat the spoon with the flame, watching its reflection in the milky metal. She's mesmerized and watches until the spoon blackens. I take the opportunity to quietly get down from my chair and try, try to slip away. But she grabs my arm and holds it like a vice. Her smile is gone now. With a look of intense concentration, she hoists up my pajama top and applies the spoon to the small of my back. And I feel the skin (laughs) bubble and hiss as I struggle in her grip. I scream, and I beg her to stop. But she's just getting started. (laughs) Methodically, she reheats the spoon and pushes it deep into the soft parts of my body, the the backs of my knees, bottoms of my bare feet, an earlobe. When she's done, her sweaty face cracks into a smile once more, (laughs) and she starts to giggle. Uncontrolled, as if it were the funniest thing in the world. She leaves me reddened and tear-streaked on the kitchen floor, shrieking laughter all the way to her room upstairs. I lie still, searing pain blossoming through my nerves for what feels like hours, and listen to her hysterics. Her laughter still rings in my ears as I return to the present, finding myself huddled on the kitchen floor with tears flowing down my cheeks. 
Eventually it fades into the sounds of the battering rain and the chimes. I repeat my mantra. She can't hurt me anymore. Not anymore. But I remember this house is haunted by more than just memories. As a strange, low, chortling moan fills the space around me. I close my eyes and wait for it to stop. There isn't much work to be done in my old bedroom. It's sparse and bare and holds no cherished memories for me. An old chair sits in the corner, and I'm reminded of the nights spent lying awake, shivering in fear as I willed my eyes to see only a few items of clothing strewn across it, and not my mother's hunched, staring form. She would occasionally hide herself in my bedroom at night, and I'd always dread hearing her stifled giggles from the cupboard or underneath the bed. Sometimes she'd whisper my name so quietly, I'd wonder if I was imagining it. She would leave silently once she was sure I knew she was there. But I spent my entire childhood waiting for the night when she wouldn't leave. When she would do whatever she was really hiding in wait to do. I checked under my bed one night when I was about ten. I was met with shining red-rimmed eyes and her wider-than-normal grin and I could never bear to look again. I've been sleeping on the couch during my stay. I decide tomorrow I'll suck it up and move on to the basement, which I've been avoiding because I know it will be the biggest job in the house, besides my mother's room, which I can't face just yet. I'm done for today, though. It's getting late and I'm bone-tired, physically and emotionally. As I curl up on the couch, a scratchy blanket that reeks of ashtrays pulled tightly around me. Lightning flashes in the darkness, and thunder booms. The chimes that hang all around the house reach a crescendo as the storm rages on. The chaos and violence of it remind me of my mother, and I imagine I see her hunched in corners, grinning at me in the darkness. Her presence permeates this house, cloying like a stink. I shiver and close my eyes, begging for sleep that will not come, despite my weariness. As I eventually start to drift off, I'm startled fully awake by a loud bang. (gasps) Muffled by the storm, there are other noises, I'm sure. Eyes wide, ears straining, I hold my breath. I'm convinced I hear a muted giggling bubbling down the stairs towards me. The rain continues to fall, the chimes clang out their unhappy tune. But between those noises, (laughs) 
I wrap my arms around myself and push my body into the cushions, wishing they would swallow me. She can't hurt me anymore. Not anymore. I awake in the early hours to the dark of the storm, having somehow managed to fall asleep. My muscles ache from tension. My head is pounding. I wipe my bleary eyes and sit up with a shuddering sigh. What else can I do besides continue my work? I drag myself to the basement. It's quiet down here, far from the rain and thunder. The air feels thick and dusty in these dim yellow lights. The underground space is cluttered, boxes spilling their contents across the ground, and I wade my way through, trying to decide where to start. I begin hauling a stack of tall boxes towards the light, uncovering something large and rusted. I fall backwards onto my hands, my breath now coming in hitches and starts. My head shaking no. It's still here. She kept it. The dented refrigerator stands tall, bottom door hanging open. Only darkness within. I feel it. The dark space pulling. The house pushing me deep into another memory I don't want to relive. I'm 12 years old. Mom's dragging me down the basement steps by one arm, my legs thumping and scrabbling as we descend into the dark. She's quiet, her expression blank and unreadable, ears deaf to my frantic pleas. I feel so weak, like my limbs are heavy and I'm moving through deep, dark water and I can barely get air into my lungs. The refrigerator is waiting, door open wide and yawning into the darkness, ready to eat. Mom shoves me inside without a word, a determined look on her face now, eyes glinting with excitement. I struggle to get out, but she keeps shoving me backwards wiry arms possessed of some insane strength. She's bending over me as we rustle, her grimy black hair everywhere. A large clump of it falls into my mouth and sticks in my throat, choking me. A gag on my mother's hair, picturing it wadding and clotting inside of me. I bite down, hard, hear a ripping sound as the hair is gruesomely parted from her scalp, and the rusting box shudders as she slams the door. I'm... I'm trapped. I frantically claw the knotted strands of filthy hair from my mouth, gagging again as it comes up as if from a wet drain. My knees are up around my head and I can barely move in the cramped space. I'm sweating in the dark. 
I move my head as, as far as I can, trying to find a way out as my eyes adjust to the blackness. But all I see are rancid, curdled bits of food clinging to the corners of the box. The sour smells mix with my panicked sweat, which is trickling down my back like spider legs. I strain my neck to look up, hoping I can somehow push through the divider and reach the upper section of the fridge. When something falls into my open eye with an audible plop. Shaking my head brings more of the debris raining down, and I feel something wiggling in my ear. Maggots. What feels like hundreds of them, falling and squirming, filled with whatever rot they've been gorging on in the upper section of the fridge. Do maggots eat living creatures? I wonder, as I thrash and elbow the sides of my prison. She left me in there, through the night, until my screams had died down to whimpers, and eventually a catatonic sort of silence. I heard her tapping on the locked door, giggling softly to herself for a long time before she opened it. I come back to myself, sitting before the fridge on the dusty basement floor. I shudder and shake out my clothing, ruffle my hair. I feel as though I'm covered in plump, writhing maggots, the memory lingering. I hear banging from above, accompanied by a long moan, as if the house is happy to see me squirm in horror once again. I've managed to box up the junk in the basement and have shoved everything, including the refrigerator, against the far wall, ready for the dump where it belongs. I'm not feeling up to her room yet. I've packed it all up. I faced every ugly memory and felt her closing in on me at every turn. The storm continues to rage. I'm trapped here still. I sit in the stained yellow bathtub and fidget a while, listening to the house buck and groan against the fearsome assault outside, thunder and rain wailing to be let in. There's hail now, and the lights flicker and dim every so often. As I turn my face towards the ceiling, listening to the barrage, I realize I'm not quite done. There's one more space to clear, and it's the only space in this shithole I've never dared to explore. A small attic crawl space where mom spent an alarming amount of time scuttling about for a period. I don't know what she used to do up there, but I'd imagine her spying through little holes in the ceiling, crawling through the dust and muck and dark to follow me through the upstairs of the house, watching me in the bathroom or in my bedroom. I'm tingling with fear. I really, really don't want to go up there. I'm also curious what fresh horrors await. The water's gone cold. I get out and towel off. 
After putting on some sweats, I pull on the swinging tab that unfurls the rickety pull-down ladder. And before I can think better of it, start climbing. It's freezing up here and dirty. My clean hands come away black with grime as I push myself up into the space. There's not much light, just the weak sprays of moonlight that have managed to pass through the clouds and rain, and occasional jags of lightning which burst through a small circular window. My throat is dry, and I'm sweating a little, despite the cold. It's bigger than I thought, or longer, at least. The arched crawl space stretches away into the darkness on either side of me. The noise of the thunder and hail is deafening so close to the sky. Crouch down and move forward into the dark, sneezing as I go. There are boxes, but most of them appear empty, and strange objects are scattered about. I find mounds of doll parts, dirty little arms and legs, decapitated heads with rolling eyes. I don't know what she did with the torsos. I come across a stinking pile of plates, moldered bits of unidentifiable food crusted thickly between them. As I pick my way through, I find an old-fashioned radio, a stack of broken mirrors, several tattered and worn dog collars, which I try not to think too much about, and a plastic tea set. The lightning flashes off something in the far right corner, and I scurry over to see what it is. Several large knives are jammed into the wooden floor in a circle, their points in far enough to leave them standing upright. Upon further investigation, I notice there's a hole in the floor in the middle of the knife circle, and when I look through it, I see my old bed. For some reason, this makes my temples ache with the strain of trying to keep tears back, and I shudder a little in the cold. I try to pull the knives out, but they won't budge. After sorting through the bits and pieces in the crawl space, I'm only really left with one big pile, all junk. I just want to get out. Coming in here straight after a bath was stupid. I'll need another one as soon as I get down. I turn from the pile to get down the ladder. And it isn't there. I don't know how, but I seem to have misplaced the exit. The space is big, but not big enough to get lost in. I don't understand it. I crouch walk around, pacing up and down the length of the place, but all I find is solid floor. No trapdoor, no ladder. I've covered the length of the space twice before I really start to panic. I feel like the house has eaten me and will finally drive me mad after all these years. The rain thrashing against the roof seems louder, the thunder more menacing. I back myself against the wall closest to where I could swear the door was, and I close my eyes. In the dark, I hear a steady thumping and a throaty, gurgling moaning. I start to cry. I I don't want to open my eyes, but I do. And she's there, 
Oh, fuck. She's there. Hunched in the corner, moaning and giggling. I can't pull my eyes away. I just watch as she crawls toward me on all fours, slavering and slobbering, eyes rolling like the ones in the doll heads. I squeeze my eyes closed now, as tight as I can. My fists are bunched. My head feels like it's going to pop. She can't hurt me. She can't hurt me. Not anymore. She can't hurt me. Not anymore. She can't hurt me. Not anymore. She can't... I open my eyes again. Nothing. A long, dusty room lit with flashes. A pile of junk. Mom isn't here. She can't be. But I still hear the moans, long and braying, all around me. And I hear the thump, thump, thump. Fuck this fucking house. Then I hear skittering. Something is moving towards me, coming for me in the dark. And this time it's not my overstressed imagination. It feels so loud, echoing the arched space. I can't tell what direction it's coming from. I get on my hands and knees and crawl blindly, just wanting it to stay away, wanting to be out of her reach. I imagine her knobbly hands clawing the air for me, her long hair ready to choke me again. I can almost feel the burns she gave me flaring up, the maggots like a waterfall wriggling into my ears, my mouth every cut and nick. Now my moans almost match the ones I still hear reverberating around me, those animalistic, ghoulish groans. I crawl backwards, moving too slowly, but I don't find the wall. I'm all turned around. Skittering. It's closer. Closer. I'm breathing in huge, big gasps, but it feels like no air is coming in. Hyperventilating. Lightning flashes, throwing the room into negative. And I see the rats, just as my knee falls out from under me. The door. It must have closed behind me, but now I'm falling through it. I catch myself awkwardly on the ladder. I ease myself down, still breathing hard. And I start laughing. (laughs) I can't help it. It's bubbling out. And then it starts to come in big, brain gasps that hurt my chest. I sit down hard in the hallway, trying to calm down, catching my breath. I breathe in and count off four seconds, hold it and breathe out for four seconds, trying to slow my rushing heart. I feel like an idiot. With my hand on my chest, I shake my head and laugh at myself. (laughs) A measured chuckle, not the hysterics of a loon this time. But then, I hear the moaning, more frantic than ever, and the banging, thumping. This house won't give me even a moment of peace. The wind chimes jangle and clang, 
an ugly cacophony, as if agreeing with me. I'm not scared anymore. I'm angry. Fuming, in fact. It's time now. I'm ready. I pause at the door to her room, suddenly doubting myself. But she can't hurt me. Not anymore. I turn the handle and let the door creak open, slowly. Hello, Mom. She's drooling around her gang. And she lets out another low, desperate moan. Her eyes are bulging, and I notice the restraints around her wrists are bloody, where she's tied to the bedposts. I might have made them too tight. She thumps her head against the headboard, and the noise is so much louder in here. I take her lighter from my pocket. In our final tale, we join a man who's about to sign up to take part in a scientific study. Oh, I know, I know. I'm sure alarm bells are already ringing in your heads. But this fellow is really short on cash. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jackson Laughlin, it really does seem pretty safe. What could go wrong in a sensory deprivation tank, after all? Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson and Graham Rowett. So climb inside the machine and have a nice break from the stress of daily life. These things are regularly used for therapeutic purposes, after all. But on the other hand, maybe you'll find yourself in a state of elevated horror when you're floating. It was the advertisement's outright simplicity that caught my attention. Revolutionized science. Earned $5,000. Call us now. I wish I could say I didn't know why I called them. I wish I could say it was some act of God or deception that drove me into their waiting arms. But that would be a lie. The truth is, I called them because I needed the money. Because I had gotten laid off at the publishing company I worked at, and I was having trouble finding steady work. Because I was months behind on rent and facing my second eviction notice. Because I didn't want to be a failure. I called them for selfish reasons. Who are they? I'm not exactly sure. In retrospect, their obvious obfuscation of their identity should have been a red flag to me. But at the time, their request seemed too interesting. 
the reward too vital for me to risk losing the chance to help them. My best guess is that they're a group of private researchers that are funded by some super corporation. They must be. Otherwise, there was no way they would have been able to pay for the machine. They showed me the machine the first time I met with them. It was kept in a cavernous room in the basement of a five-story office building. It was a work in progress at that time. They were still connecting pipes and soldering wires. But even in an unfinished state, it looked truly magnificent. Have you ever heard of a sensory deprivation chamber? I had, in fact. I'd actually been inside one before, when I was in college. Back then, I was on a real hippy-dippy spiritual journey. You know, meditating a lot, experimenting with psychedelic drugs, primarily magic mushrooms. At some point along that journey, I felt motivated to spend an hour of my life and $60 of my student loans inside a sensory deprivation chamber at a local spa. Your standard sensory deprivation chamber is a large metal tank filled with about a foot of salt water. You step in and float in the water. Then someone, the spa attendant in my case, closes off the tank so it's completely dark. With your vision obscured and your body suspended in the water, it's supposed to feel like you no longer have your two primary senses. Depending on who you ask, this is supposed to be relaxing, enhance your creative process, allow you to reach higher consciousness, hallucinate, or maybe gain magic powers. My experience with the chamber in college was fairly lackluster. I remember that the water was too frigid and the salt made my skin itch. It was difficult to concentrate on meditating or channeling my inner chakra or whatever the spa had promised. Truthfully, I did always wonder what it would have been like to get in one of those things while tripping on some magic mushrooms. But I never had the opportunity. This sensory deprivation chamber didn't look anything like the one I used in college. This chamber looked like a vivisected suit of medieval armor strewn across a large metal table. Thousands of tubes and wires connected to the metal body, which was about three times larger than my own body. The head, or helmet, of the chamber was colossal and round. The big brass pipe running out of its crown into the tiled floor beneath it. On the walls surrounding the chamber were 50 or 60 computer screens. 20 or so server boxes, and various iterations of medical equipment that I could name if I tried. It dawns on me now that the utility bills and computers alone for the machine must have been many tens of times higher than the measly $5,000 they offered me. Not to mention the salaries of the dozens of lab coat-clad scientists manning those computer screens. Again... Perhaps this should have raised alarm bells. But I ignored it with the focused ignorance of a man who was on the brink of homelessness. The man who showed me the machine told me his name was Dr. Monison. He was a wrinkled, balding man with a clean shave and focused blue eyes. 
When I saw him, he was always wearing blue scrubs and a clean white lab coat. Dr. Monison was the primary liaison for my involvement on this project. He explained the machine's purpose, brought me the necessary waivers, and answered all my questions. So, what exactly am I supposed to do? We want you to remain in our sensory deprivation chamber for three days. I'm sure my expression betrayed my sense of shock. Three days? Is that... I mean, will... Will that kill me? You would probably still be alive after three days in pure isolation on your own, though you would likely become gravely ill and suffering from immense dehydration. In this case, the machine will hydrate, feed, and otherwise sustain you during the experiment, so there is no risk of bodily harm. Dr. Monison went on to explain how the machine worked. In your standard deprivation chamber, the occupant is deprived of their sense of sight, feeling, and to a lesser extent, hearing. This deprivation, this process of shutting the outside world out from the occupant's mind, decreases the burden on their brain. Thus, the occupant's mind is free to wander more freely, free to think more creatively, to undergo a deeper state of thinking, to meditate, and so on. But there is a problem with standard sensory deprivation chambers. Although the brain is freed from most external stimuli, the visual and auditory, the brain will continue to be burdened by internal stimuli. That is to say that the brain is still aware of its own carrier, the human body. The brain will still react to the hunger and thirst of the vessel that carries it. It will still process both the need to and the action of urination and defecation. These internal interruptions go on and on. But the point is that standard sensory deprivation chambers cannot truly be said to deprive the occupant of their senses. This machine is not your standard sensory deprivation chamber. Even a cursory glance at the machine made clear what the doctor meant. The inside of the exoskeleton portion of the machine is lined with a soft rubber that will acclimate to maintain the exact temperature of the human skin. The tubes and vials control and regulate a wide variety of bodily functions. Through these tubes, the body is automatically fed and hydrated. The unsavory functions of the body are handled with a catheter and another series of tubes. A respirator automates breathing and regulates saliva production. Even the body's natural sense of touch is completely removed while in the machine. This IV cord injects a numbing solution into the bloodstream that completely shuts off all feeling. The numbing agent is the most critical asset of our sensory deprivation process. The list went on and on. It became clear that they had truly accounted for everything. Even for me. I was one of hundreds of applicants to be part of the experiment. For the first time in my life, I was the first round draft pick. The scientist explained to me that I had been chosen for three reasons. Number one, I had no prior history of mental or physical illness that would make my experience in the chamber subject to intervening variables. Their words, not mine. Number two, 
My height and weight were close matches for the machine's original shape. Also, the legs will have to be lengthened ever so slightly. You are by far the closest match to our initial design. And number three, the most critical, there was nothing happening outside of that chamber that would lead to an early termination of the experiment. I had no significant other, no job, no living family members, not even a houseplant to take care of. They could breathe easy, knowing that I would remain peaceful within their contraption for the entire length of the experiment. Number three was important to the scientists. They had specifically designed the machine to allow for three full days of isolation. If the machine's process had to be interrupted early, it would take them a month to reset the machine and run the experiment again. Unfortunately, reason number three also meant that there was nobody to come looking for me. The intake process was long and detailed. I signed what felt like hundreds of liability waivers. I listened to warning after warning about the potential side effects. Although it is apparent that you have a clean bill of health, you should be aware the isolation process may be taxing on you. Our preliminary research suggests that disassociation, audio and visual hallucinations, depression, time dilation, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and other neuroses are potential side effects. However, we believe such effects to be unlikely. They had given me several weeks to prepare for the experiment. My only requirement during that time was that I didn't substantially change my body weight or somehow develop bipolar disorder. Somehow, I managed. I spent those few weeks living normally, watching movies, applying for jobs, getting rejected for those jobs, and reading a few books. When the day came, I was nervous, despite Dr. Monison's efforts to prepare me. The process will come in stages. At first, you may enjoy a mild state of stress. We anticipate that soon after, you will drift into a moderate state of euphoria for the remainder of the process. You will be signaled a few minutes before the experiment is over by a short audio cue. This way, you will emerge from your state of sensory deprivation slowly and be able to reacclimate without any risk of shock. He played the audio cue for me, which was a short musical clip of bells ringing. Then, with little ceremony or deliberation, I was asked to remove my clothing and climb inside the machine. As I lay down inside the exoskeleton, I felt the warm rubber against my bare skin. Even with the chamber still open, I was confined on all sides by the metal shell of the machine. Slowly, the researchers began to attach a score of medical devices to my body. I felt strangely calm through every prick of an IV and uncomfortable insertion of a tube. But as a respirator was placed on my face, I began to feel a foreboding sense of unease. As I felt my body being constricted and held in place, a single thought filled my mind. Oh God, what have I done? The researchers pushed the helmet of the exoskeleton inward on either side of my head, sealing off my ears. The world went quiet 
a bead of sweat began to trickle down my sides. Then I heard a voice, seemingly broadcast from inside my own head. Hello, this is Dr. Monazen. I'm speaking to you via a small speaker contained within the helmet of the exoskeleton. Your vital signs indicate that you are beginning to panic. This is to be expected. Please do your best to relax while we finish preparing you. I promise that the process will become pleasurable soon enough. Somehow telling me to relax just made me more anxious. Before I could react, I felt the machine close around my body. Already, the numbing agent that was being piped into my bloodstream was starting to take away control of my extremities. I tried to push against the machine, but found that my arms wouldn't budge. I tried to scream, but the respirator held my tongue firmly in place. I was unable to move. Unable to do anything. Except watch. I could still watch as researchers scrambled around me to check vitals and prepare the exoskeleton to finish closing. I could still watch as a giant analog timer appeared on a TV screen above me and began to broadcast a time. One minute until deprivation begins. I tried again to scream. I tried again to plead to be let out. I found myself unable to feel any part of my body. I strained my eyes to try to get someone's attention, but no one seemed to be looking at me. Thirty seconds until deprivation begins. Had my tear ducts been operating, I would have begun crying. With nothing else to do, I began to pray that this was a bad dream. That I was home in bed and not in this chamber. Five seconds until deprivation begins. The last thing I saw was the face of Dr. Monison leaning over me. Waving to me. Saying something I couldn't quite understand. Closing the exoskeleton's face over my own. Zero seconds until deprivation begins. And then, everything went dark. If I had been in control of my own breathing, I would have begun hyperventilating immediately. I had never felt such a profound sense of darkness as in that moment. Unable to see even my own body, it was as if I had been extinguished from existence. My eyes swam in every direction in search of a single iota of light, but found none. After a moment's consideration, I realized that I had now been in the machine for some time. I had no reference point for exactly how long. Without outside stimuli of any kind, my only mechanism of telling time was by counting individual seconds in my head. Yet time ticked on. I found myself alternating between obsessing about my imprisonment and finding myself adrift in my thoughts. I began to consider the state of my life, my recent unemployment, my lack of close friends. I felt a wave of depression come over me. Was my life really so meaningless that I could be snuffed out of existence for three days and no one could possibly care? 
I pondered the source of my isolation. I looked back to times I could have tried harder at my job. Images of friendship that I had let fall apart out of introversion and stagnation cascaded through my mind. And then I came across a thought in my head that, were my body not numb to the point of immobility, would have made me burst out into laughter. I felt lonely. Well, of course I felt lonely. I was, at that moment, the most alone human being there had ever been. Surely there were researchers only a few feet away from my terrestrial body, but my mind had been isolated completely. I was as alone as someone could be. I let my mind continue to wander. It felt as though I had been in the chamber for hours at this point. Although I had planned to spend this time planning some sort of creative endeavor, the great American novel, perhaps, I found my mind repeatedly coming back to my current predicament. Obsessively, I thought about my body and the container that currently housed it. The numbing medicine must have been truly quite something. I couldn't feel the slightest wisp of breath passing through my nasal cavities or the rumble of my stomach. It was then that a pair of intertwining thoughts collided in my mind. Could I be dead? No, of course not. That would be ridiculous. I knew how I had ended up here. I knew that I had signed up to engage in an experiment that would put me in this exact predicament. But I must admit, I no longer felt very alive. Without my body or the surrounding world as a reference point, it felt as though I had no assurance that I still existed. My thoughts began dueling with one another. Surely I'm not dead. This is exactly what the experiment was supposed to do. If you're not dead, then why can't you feel anything? Why can't you feel your breath? Or saliva? Or anything? But I know I'm not dead because I'm thinking right now. What does that mean? You know? Think, therefore I am? I think, therefore I am. A smarter man could have told you who said that. But I was left with just that proclamation from an unknown source as the only assurance that I was alive. As long as I was thinking, I was still alive. I began to picture myself floating through a void in space. The image was clear in front of my eyes. My body lay flat, my arms stiff, as I rocketed past stars and unfamiliar planets. I watched my body weave past asteroids and through planetary rings. I felt the warmth of the sun on my body and the cold ice of the frozen planets on my skin. Except, I didn't really feel those things. I had to remind myself of that. I was starting to imagine feelings that weren't really there. 
I wasn't sure how much I should try to avoid these feelings, or just embrace them for the duration of the experiment. Just another question to ponder, I supposed. There came a moment when I realized that I had been in sensory deprivation for a long time. Since I had not been counting, it was impossible to know how long. Has it been days? Already? That was a worrying thought. In a timeless void, three days stretched on like an endless millennium. They had assured me that I would only be inside the machine for three days. But how could I know for sure? Once I was inside, I had no way of getting out. They could keep me for as long as they wanted to. Maybe that was their plan all along. How could they get away with that? Who knows what all those liability waivers I signed said? I stopped reading them after the third or fourth one. Maybe I agreed to this. You're being crazy. I don't know if I'm being crazy or not. I don't know how long I've been in here. So count. That was right. I had one way to tell how long I had been inside the machine. Counting. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. And on and on. I counted to sixty. That was a minute. And then I counted another minute. And another. And another. And another. I just kept going and going. I never lost focus on the task at hand. Then, I hit a thousand minutes. Technically, a thousand minutes was only a little more than sixteen and a half hours. Certainly not the three-day period I was supposed to be inside the machine. But that was sixteen and a half hours on top of all the time I'd already spent thinking about my life and dreaming about floating through space. Surely I had spent longer thinking to myself than I had counting. I tried to guess how long I had been in the machine. Felt like it had been more than three days. I just kept trying to tell myself that I would be let out of the machine soon. I let my mind drift off again. My body was once again floating through space. I watched it drift farther and farther out into an endless void of darkness. The planets and suns shrunk into oblivion until I was truly, deeply alone. In the black abyss, a creeping feeling of cold began to set in. Its biting sting spread up my legs and torso to my face. My naked skin turned a pale blue and began to harden into a crystalline husk. As my body drifted farther into darkness, I watched the surface of my stomach crack and chip. Slowly, chunks of my body began to break off and float into the darkness. With each expelled scrap of flesh, a new wave of pain cascaded through me. I found myself trying to grab onto my frozen body and put it back together. 
but my arms and legs were so cold that I couldn't budge. I tried to scream, but my tongue had swelled so large that it filled my crumbling, frigid mouth. All at once, my body exploded into an array of jagged, bloody shards of ice. The pain was indescribable. Then I was, again, alone in the darkness, bodiless. Without lungs to expel the panicked breaths I was so desperate to create, I had to keep telling myself it isn't real. I'm still alive. My body is still here. Somewhere. But God, didn't it feel real? But it wasn't real. Real or not, didn't it hurt? Yes. Are you scared? Yes. Wait, you hear that? I listened through ears that were a million miles away. A voice, not my own, burst into my head. Its bristly accent was familiar. Hello, this is Dr. Monison. I am contacting you again via the small speakers contained within the helmet of the exoskeleton. I am proud to announce that you have successfully completed three days within the machine. I felt my alarm melt quickly into relief. I tried to smile, to little avail. At this juncture, we would like to update you as to the status of our experiment. The data we're getting from your brain scan is proving incredibly useful. The medical implications are numerous. We have contacted our institutional review board and obtained permission to extend the experiment indefinitely. This, of course, in accordance with the liability waivers that you've signed previously. The machine should be able to keep you alive for a few more weeks until your body becomes unable to support it any further. Do not worry. $5,000 will nonetheless be credited into your account. Thank you for your contribution. Your sacrifice will save lives. I tried to scream. I tried to flail my arms in protest and push back against the doctor's words. But my screams were silent. And my arms no longer part of me. I felt a deep, echoing hole of dread growing inside of me. Yet I would never truly feel anything again. I would die in this chamber. It would take days. And those days would feel like months. And those months would be torture. I again saw myself floating in an immeasurable darkness. There were no stars or planets. It was only my body, unequivocally alone. Arguably alive, but inevitably dead. I stopped counting the seconds and just let myself float. My mind wandered again, this time for much longer. I dreamt of my childhood and of a future I would never get to lead. I made an imaginary bucket list and felt remorse for the boxes I had not yet checked. I held conversations in my head between old friends and lovers. And sometimes, I didn't think at all. 
Sometimes I disappeared from existence altogether. But then I felt it. I felt something. I couldn't tell what it was at first. It had been so long since I felt something that I couldn't tell if I was imagining it or not. It was... my big toe. My big toe on my right foot. Somehow, some way it still had feeling. Not a lot of feeling. It felt like when you sit on your hand and it becomes almost, but not quite, numb. Like it was being massaged by a set of pins and needles. I moved the toe around, the little that I could, to try to understand how this feeling had come back. Then I felt it. A tiny prick. The slightest droplet of pain against my big toe. Something sharp. An IV needle. It must have become dislodged somehow. Maybe one of those lab coat wearing schmucks tripped over it or something. All I knew was that I could feel again. I suddenly felt like I had been reborn. Like I had died and risen from the ashes. This needle must have been one of the IVs that was supposed to deliver the numbing chemical into my body. Somehow, it got dislodged and now I had just a little feeling in my toe. Unfortunately, my big toe was hardly the vestige of my body most suited to orchestrate my grand escape. But still, I felt immeasurable happiness. Because I had a secret weapon on my side. Time. There's an old adage that goes, if you give a monkey a typewriter, an infinite time, he will eventually write the complete works of Shakespeare. Similarly, with a partially numb big toe and infinite time to think, I could craft my big breakout. My big toe was too weak to push open the exoskeleton. Despite my straining, I was unable to reach any other cords to pull them out. All I could reach was the IV needle that had already been removed. And with that IV needle, I hatched my plan. I scraped my toe across it. It stung. But I knew it would do the trick. I knew that I had forced those stupid scientist hands. My efforts had made a cut in my toe skin. And now, I knew I was going to be okay. They only had two options. Let me bleed out, in which case I would at least be free from this hell. Or let me out of the chamber, at least long enough to reattach the IV. Either way, my plan was foolproof. Either way, I was going to be free. At least for a moment. It only took them a few minutes to notice what I had done. This is Dr. Monison again, communicating via the tiny speaker in the helmet of the exoskeleton. It seems you have managed to injure yourself inside the machine. After some discussion, we have elected to pause the experiment and correct the error. Stand by. The exoskeleton will be opening shortly. The light that soon flooded my eyes all but blinded me. 
As the machine opened, I bathed in the sounds of its electronic thunks and whirs, and the conversation of the men around me. A quick tug as needles and tubes were removed from me felt better than any touch I had ever experienced. They let me out. I was free. My body was numb for hours. The medicine prevented me from making any movements at all. During that time, the scientists left me in the exoskeleton as they went over data and bandaged my big toe. I tried to listen to everything they were saying, but found myself unable to concentrate. The bright lights above me burned my eyes, which had grown accustomed to perfect darkness. As the drugs slowly left my body, a dull ache developed in my joints. After a while, my body was hauled out of the exoskeleton by a team of the lab coats. I felt a dressing gown slip on over my head. I was plopped into a wheelchair, still unable to move. I listened to the roll of metal wheels as they pushed that chair deeper and deeper into their lab. Explain again about when you were floating through space. What was the sensation like? Please, let me go. I can't, you know that. The data we were getting from you is too important. Lives are at stake. And besides that, they can't risk you going to the police. You'll be going back in the machine. This conversation had been going on for about an hour in the tiny interrogation room set up somewhere in the research group's massive underground lab. Although I had regained enough feeling to speak, I still found movement quite difficult. It was clear that as soon as I outlived my usefulness to the lab coats, I was going to be placed back inside the machine until my bodily demise. The data that the scientists had gained so far was so useful they had no problem holding me against my will. As I sat in that tiny metal room, tied to a cold folding chair, clad only in a thin dressing gown, I considered my fate. For $5,000, I had sold away the rest of my life. My only respite now was that I could delay going back in the machine for as long as I resisted Dr. Monison's questioning. But I knew I was just delaying the inevitable. I stared down at my big toe, now wrapped in a bandage. Somehow it had not dawned on me that even if I got out of the machine, the scientists were unlikely to let me out of the building alive. Not after they decided to imprison me until I died anyway. What if I don't answer the questions? The data we intend to receive from those questions is critical and could save lives. But if we cannot elicit it, then the information received from the exoskeleton will be sufficient. If you won't answer, we will return you to the machine now. So it didn't matter. I was already doomed. I might as well delay for as long as I could. 
Fine. Ask me what you want to ask me. I answered hundreds of questions. Most of them multiple times. It took hours. The scientists barely listened to my words. There was a recorder placed in the room with me. I'm sure someone would dig through my answers later. But for now, the conversation seemed to be mostly for posterity's sake. At some point, though, I realized something. The drugs had completely left my body. I could, theoretically, move again. For now, I was tied to a chair. But they couldn't keep me tied up if they wanted me to go back into the machine. And from that thought, I came up with a plan. I knew I would only have a few seconds. I knew I couldn't run immediately or they would catch me. I would have to convince them I was resigned to my fate. When the questioning concluded, I found myself being hauled back into the chamber containing the exoskeleton. Perhaps assuming that I would flee otherwise, the scientists kept me tied up during transit. But the ties came off when it was time to put me in the machine. They stripped off my nightgown and lifted me inside the device. They let my body go limp as they did, feigning the same numbness that had, until recently, restricted my movement. As I laid down in the rubber interior of the exoskeleton, Dr. Monison spoke to me through a loudspeaker in the ceiling. I am sorry, we have to part again. Your answers will be invaluable for future research. I know it may seem now like we are villains, but the research we're obtaining is important. You are doing an invaluable service to the world. As his speech ended, his researchers again approached to fill my body with needles and tubes. I was eager to make my escape, but I held tight. They would have to believe I was unable to move. I felt pinpricks in my right arm. I was already being loaded up with a numbing agent. My time was going to be short. As some of the lab coats approached me on my left side to insert another IV, I launched myself upward so I was standing inside the machine. Surprised by my sudden motion, the scientists on my left recoiled. I felt a sharp pain in my right arm as the IVs and tubes held tight against the strain of my sudden motion. The room exploded into panic. Men rushed at me from all sides. I felt my body moving as of its own volition. My left arm reached towards my right and ripped a series of cords and needles out of my body. Blood sprayed onto the machine. My right arm fell loosely to my side. I propelled myself out of the machine and onto the floor, naked as the day I was born. The numbing agent had disabled my right arm, but most of my body was fine. I sprinted towards the door through which I had originally entered the lab, what now seemed like a millennium ago. I did not dare turn back to see if I was being chased. All I could do was run. As I pushed the door open, 
I saw a long hallway that led to a set of alternating staircases. Staircases that I had walked up and down several times while preparing for the experiment. Stairs that I had always assumed I would one day walk up for the last time. I pushed my body as hard as I could. I ran with my right arm dangling limp beside me until I reached the stairs. Behind me, the angered yells of men and the thud of their footsteps remained consistent. I knew that if they caught me, it was game over. When I reached the stairs, I practically jumped up the entire first flight. As I turned to climb the next flight, I saw that only two men had kept pace with me. Suddenly, I was filled with hope. Perhaps I could outrun them all. Then I would go to the police and get the chance to put this whole operation under the microscope. As soon as I got to the top of that second flight of stairs and through the exit doors, I would be free. My hopes were dashed as soon as I reached the top of the stairs. At least 15 men guarding the building's exit. Clearly my escape had been a contingency for which the facility was prepared. As the men approached behind me and in front of me, I knew there was only one way I could go. The alternating staircases continued past the ground floor, all the way up to the roof. I kept running, staircase after staircase, my aching body protesting each step, my dead arm banging against stair railings and walls as I made my way up, the sounds of angry men filling my ears as I took step after step after step. Soon, I was on the last staircase, a ladder hanging from the ceiling led up to a hatch on the roof of the building. This was it. I was going to see the outside world again. I didn't know where I was going to go once I got up there. But I knew I was free. I jumped onto the ladder and pulled myself up about six feet into the air. When I reached the top, I pushed on the hatch. It was heavy and barely budged. I strained against it for a moment and felt a tight grip on my ankle. One of the men had caught up. He had wrapped his cold hand around my leg and was beginning to yank me off the ladder. I turned slightly and saw it was Dr. Monison. His eyes were red and as large as saucers. It was like looking into the eyes of the devil himself. I reacted purely out of instinct. My grip on the ladder tightened, and I swung my free foot at the doctor's face. As my heel collided with his jaw, sending teeth and blood flying in all directions, I couldn't help but smile at the feeling. It hurt like you wouldn't believe, but it felt damn good to feel something. Dr. Monison relaxed his grip. I pushed upwards again, and the hatch gave way. I clambered upwards onto the flat roof of the building. A thin layer of gravel covered the rooftop. The sharp stones poked at my bare feet, but I kept moving. I ran to the edge of the roof and looked out into the city. 
a beautiful horizon of skyscrapers and stars filled my view. I felt the cold breeze against my bare skin. The voices of the men behind me barely registered as I climbed onto the edge of the roof. I must have been a sight to the people walking by on the sidewalk below. A naked man standing on the edge of a building, staring at the horizon as if he had never seen one before. Please come down from there. You don't have to go back in the machine. We just... we just need you to come down. It was Dr. Monison again. His voice was hard to understand now that he was short a few teeth. I turned away from the horizon to look at him. He was surrounded on all sides by other men in lab coats. I knew in that moment that I had no real choices left. Could I believe Dr. Monison that he wouldn't put me back in the machine? Probably not. But I had no chance to escape at this point. There were too many of them for me to get away. Just as one of the researchers reached out to grab me, I took a step backward. As my body tumbled down to the earth below, I found myself laughing. It was just like when I was in the machine. My body was floating once again. The cold air numbed my body, and once again, I couldn't feel a thing. Just before I struck the ground, I heard the sound of church bells ringing out. Hallelujah. I figured I must be on my way to heaven. No heaven came. Instead, I found myself in complete darkness. Feeling nothing. Seeing nothing. Simply ruminating on my previous actions. Is this what death is like? In answer to my question, I heard a familiar voice. Hello, this is Dr. Monison. I'm speaking to you once again via a small speaker contained within the helmet of the exoskeleton. You have successfully completed your three days within the sensory deprivation machine. Had I not still been pumped full of numbing drugs, I would have wept. We are currently in the process of opening the machine. At that point, we will perform a physical assessment. I'm sure you are anxious to leave. I can assure you we will move as quickly as possible to make that happen. Thank you so much for your assistance with this project. It has been invaluable. Three days. I had been in that machine for exactly three days. It didn't click for me until they were pulling me out of the machine. There was no bandage on my big toe. No needle near my foot on which I could have cut myself. The facility was nothing but accommodating in the hours after the experiment terminated. It provided me with a comfortable place to rest while the remainder of the drugs left my system. Although they asked questions about my experience, they were not hostile when I refused to speak. 
The researchers were happy to answer my questions about the experience. Happy to tell me it was all in my head. In the days following the experiment, Dr. Monison made sure that I was provided with any mental health resources that I requested. He connected me with the therapist that I had been seeing for several weeks. The therapist has prescribed me an antidepressant which I take twice a day. I have returned to my normal life. My rent is paid. I'm seeing someone new. I got a new job at another book publishing company. It's like all my fantasies have come true. But no matter how long I talk to the therapist, and no matter how many pills I take, I can't get the machine out of my head. I can't stop thinking about how those three days seem to extend indefinitely. But you're out of the machine. Your three days are up. Yes, but... But what? I was out of the machine once before. But that wasn't real. But it felt real. Does this feel real? I don't know anymore. Could three days feel even longer? Could I imagine a therapist, a job, a better life? I don't know. Sometimes I close my eyes and I become too afraid to open them because I'm worried that when I do, I will only see darkness. I'm scared. I will find myself still, floating, motionless, amongst those imaginary stars. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. 
On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.